Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Eric Johnson. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ibethel.org. If you have your Bibles, uh, go to the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to read a couple verses out of there, and then we're going to spend most of our morning in the book of Luke. <clears throat> How many have ever been in a fight? And you, after the fight was all said and done, you ask yourself, why in the world did I get in that fight? Like, what was the point of that? How many have ever gotten mad at something, and when it was all said and done, you're like, what was I all jacked up about? We all have been there. You know, I'm not a fighter by nature, but I, Brian and I didn't get in any fight except for maybe once that I recall. Two. My mom just told me two. All right. Two fight. You have to tell me about the other one. So the only one that my memory said, and what I do remember, I could take you to the house. It's in Weaverville, East Branch Road, the house on the right, second level, TV room upstairs. And something happened where I got really mad, and Brian wasn't. So that, my memory tells me that. So probably what happened is Brian antagonized me, and I got all mad, so he, he's having fun with that. He, he, he was actually decent at that. So I'm, I had just watched a karate movie, and I had just watched the roundhouse kick. You know, you, you, know you, you do a 360 roundhouse kick. If you don't know what it is, Google it. It's pretty cool. So I thought, I'm going to roundhouse kick him. I'm going <laughs> to... So I, I do this roundhouse kick. I missed him horribly. I wasn't even close. And then when I came down, my heel came down and hit the corner of the recliner, the wood leg. Oh, my gosh. I went to the ground just screaming in pain, and Brian laughed at me and ran out of the room. <laughs> that, that is about it. Apparently, there was another fight that I don't recall. But, see, I'm not a fighter. And today, I want to talk about we need to fight the right fights. We need to fight the right fights. I believe as a believer, as a church, it's important that we know which fight to fight and which one to not even think about. And we live in a day and age right now where there's a lot of fights that are being started and picked. And the church is being lured into all these fights. And we don't belong in those fights. It's really important that we get there. So today, I actually want to get our attention on fighting the right fights. There's a phrase that, um, I don't know who coined it, but I kind of took it. And whenever I have to determine if I'm going to get engaged with something or not, I always kind of ask myself this question. Is this the mountain that I'm willing to die on? And if the answer is no, I'm like, I'm good. But if it's, if it's the mountain I'm willing to die on, then that's the fight I need to, I need to go fight. And so in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Let's read the beginning of verse 12 one more time. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now get your Bible over Luke chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I want to give a really quick context of what's going on in Luke chapter 13. In verses 6 through 8, it's actually a parable of the fig tree. This is not the fig tree that Jesus cursed and told it to not told it to die because it didn't bear fruit. This is a whole different fig tree in a parable. So let's read verses six to nine, and then I'll kind of give context for the rest of the chapter. 
He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? I love that last line. It's like it's just wasting space. Verse 8, But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. This is kind of the context. I think it's important to understand the context before we get into the story. We're going to spend most of our time together between verses 10 and 17. So Jesus, what's he saying? He's saying, listen, I have, this tree has been three years and it's still not producing fruit. When we know his public ministry was three years long. So he's actually, in his mind, been looking for fruit of all the seed he's sown. So he's looking around going, where's the fruit of this? And then there's this really beautiful story, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But then after the story, when you look at verses 18 and 19, he talked about the mustard seed. He talked about how the mustard seed is a very small seed, but what it produces is the massive tree-like character, if you will, and it becomes massive and huge, and birds and all kinds of stuff live on it. It's an amazing picture of Jesus saying, the kingdom is going to happen, and it's going to be massive. You might not see it now, but it will take off. And as we are thousands of years later, I think we can attest and say, yeah, the kingdom is pretty big. It's, it's a massive thing. It, it's taken over the world. And then the very next passage, he actually talked about the leaven, verses 20 and 21, Talked about the leaven as they get the yeast into the, into the, the bread and the dough. It, it affects everything. And he's talking about how the leaven of the kingdom, the, it gets into society. It gets into every part of life. And there is an effect. There is an impact the kingdom has on life. But by the end of the chapter, you find Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. So back up track here. He said, I'm looking for fruit. There was this great story, which we're going to read. Then he talked about the leaven and the mustard seed. And then the end, he cried out, Jerusalem, I wish you would have embraced me, drawn close to me while I was with you. So this is the the frame of mind that Jesus is in. So now let's pick up the story in verse 10. Let's read all the way to verse 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. Say that with me, 18 years years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hand on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's go back up to verse 10. We're going to go back through the story and just talk about specific verses, and there's a few things I want to pull out with the time that I have. Verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. 
I want to talk about synagogue for a moment because I, want, I think it's important to understand that. Because I think in Western church culture, the word synagogue is a foreign concept. But you'll be surprised it's actually what, how we gather, it actually can be related, directly connected to a synagogue. But a synagogue in Jewish culture and Judaism was a, like a community center. It was a place where kids often went to school. It was actually sometimes acted as a courtroom. This is where justice took place. It also was a place where they prayed and they worshipped. And some of them actually had lodging. So if you were coming through the area, you could stay the night there. So it was a centerpiece in Jewish tradition. This is where people gathered and did life. It wasn't just go to church and then go home. It actually was kind of an everyday occurrence. It was the centerpiece of their life. So Jesus goes to a synagogue, which was his tradition. He did that often. And I believe this is the last time he went to a synagogue before he goes to the cross. And Jesus often, in Luke chapter 4, is when he showed up to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he made a declaration of the old prophetic word of him being the Messiah. Imagine being at church on that day and this man named Jesus, son of Joseph, stands up, opens the book and reads the Bible and says, I am that, and shuts the Bible and sits down. Imagine the commotion in the room, especially when you grew up with Joseph. He was your buddy. He was the one that you skipped rocks on the lakes with. He was the one that you went fishing with. He was the guy that did pranks every now and when you can turn water into wine, how many know that you can pull some really good pranks? (laughs) Seriously, I'm I'm, I'm not surprised. I would not be surprised to find out we get to heaven and Jesus pulls some serious pranks. But this is the guy you grew up with. And all of a sudden, that guy stands up and said, I am the scripture. This is me. So this is where Jesus did that. I love church. Now, I understand everybody's got a different view on church. I think the church is strange and very beautiful. I did a message years ago, just it's strange and beautiful at the same time. What we get to do every week and gather is a miracle in of itself. We don't realize how, how awesome we have it. I mean, we're celebrating veterans today. They paid a price so you and I could have freedom in religion. I mean, they literally gave a chunk of their life away so you and I could come and sit in a nice, comfortable, air-conditioned climate and worship freely and literally talk about whatever we want to talk about without the fear of every waking moment I'm going to be dead because of my belief system. I mean, what we get to do every week, we can't take this lightly. Like that chair you're sitting in is a valuable seat. There are people all over the world, millions of people that would do anything to sit in this room every week and to be able to worship freely as we get to every week. So going to church or going to a synagogue is an important part of life. This is not a bad idea. And I know I'm talking to the choir because we love coming to church here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this room. Unless your wife drugged you here and your mom told you because you're... You're a teenager and you're not, you, don't want, you want to be home right now watching something, but your mom said, no, you're coming to church. I remember when I was a kid, Brian and I had an attitude one Sunday morning about coming to church. And my mom looked us in the eye and she said, it is a privilege to go to church. I didn't believe her at the time. <laughs> but now that I'm old and mature, I'm like, it is actually a privilege. And I, a couple years ago, I had to pull that one out on my daughter. Hey, hey, girl, listen, it is a privilege to go to church. <laughs> You need to know that. They roll their eyes just like my, Brian and I rolled our eyes at mom. Anyway, I love church. We were the kids at communion Sunday was our favorite Sunday because there was always leftover communion. 
So we like, Dad, hurry up, finish the message, hurry up. Dad would finish, please stand, pray, call the elders up front to minister. And as soon as he did that, Brian and I bolted out the back door and we went and found all the leftover communion and ate all the sourdough bread. Our mouth got so dry and sour and then we just chugged all the little... We, our, our, our goal was who could drink as many as... And we'd keep the stack of communion cups. Are there any other PKs in here that can relate to me here? Exactly. It's a rare world that you live in. But this is what PKs do. You know, in Jesus, partake of my flesh and drink my blood, Brian and I got, did it very well. And we keep the cups and take them home and wash them. The one that people used. I know, it's disgusting. What were we thinking? I don't know. We, weren't not, we were not thinking. So let's go to verse 11. And behold, there was a woman who had the spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So at church on this particular Sunday, there's Jane. I'm just giving her the name Jane. If your name is Jane, there's no relationship between this woman and you. So just, just making that clear, because you'd be amazed at how people get upset for using their name. Happened once. I won't go there right now. <laughs> Jane's been coming to church for a while. She had the spirit of infirmity, which in this case, her infliction was she punched over, and it was from the demonic realm. It was actually her spirit was involved in causing this infliction. And Jesus recognized it. For 18 years, that's a long time. Imagine for 18 years, she had no ability to straighten herself up, none. So her whole world was looking at the ground. For 18 years, all she saw was the ground. She probably had a cane just to give some sense of control of her walk. But imagine, if she had to look at you, she had to crane her head to get a view of you. And I bet you most of the time she didn't even bother to look because it was too much work. This is 18 years this woman has been dealing with this. And I bet, you know, we find out in a minute that she gets healed. I bet when she finally stood up and saw you direct the face, she's like, man, you look different at this angle than this angle. I mean, this is the real reality for this woman. And Jesus said, Jane, come here. And Jane comes up or Jesus goes back either way. He said, woman, you're loose from this spirit of infirmity. Puts his hand on her. Immediately, she straightens up. A profound moment and that Jesus did something. But what we don't know is that Jesus supposedly violated one of the strongest traditions of the Jewish faith, and that was the Sabbath. So let's read in the next verse of what happens. And when he laid his hand, um, verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. This is mind-boggling. Just picture this. Pretend like this was happening. Todd White's here, and Todd White called up people with no arms. He said, people with no arms, come to the front. And so all of a sudden, we see a couple people come to the front. They stand up here. Todd comes off the stage. He grabs their, obviously, no arms, their shoulders, and said, I command these arms to be gone. Let's say their arms grew out, which this room would go ballistic. But imagine if I stood up and said, hold on, Todd, you cannot do that here. Stop that. No, this is the wrong day to do that. You can do that six days of the week, but not this day. I mean, this is really foreign. That would not happen in this room, but this is actually what took place. 
Super odd, super strange. So we have to ask the question, how do you get to a place where you're upset that a rule wasn't kept, but somebody got straightened out after 18 years? What causes tradition to become dead? What causes a religion to become a dead religion? We have to ask these questions, because I'm not saying we're anywhere near that, but we want to make sure that we've got our priorities set straight. And Jesus does something he, that people think he was against the Sabbath. No, he was very much the Sabbath. It came from him. So Jesus was like, ah, oh, we'll just get rid of the Sabbath. No, that he was all for it. And in fact, scholars tell us that Jesus actually operated in the confines of the Sabbath. But by this time, when the Sabbath was first given centuries before, and by the time you get to this, the religious system had taken something that was meant to be a place, a day of rest, and made it this complex system of rules and regulation. They say there were over 60 columns of regulations on the Sabbath day alone. In fact, there's one Sabbath rule that said, you cannot walk a half a mile from your house on the day of Sabbath. You can only stay within a 3,000 foot circumference of your home. You can't go past that. So on the day before, they'd make a few sandwiches. They would go out to the half-mile mark, put a sandwich at the half-mile mark. Then they put a sandwich at the one-mile mark. And on the day of Sabbath, to protect the rule, they would walk to the half-mile mark, sit down, grab their sandwich, eat it, and they would call this their temporary home. And then they get up and go, oh, I'm going to go another half-mile. And Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? When you start paying attention to the letter of the law and not the heart of the law, that's when religion becomes dead. In fact, he says, guys, listen. You take your animals to the water on the day of Sabbath. You care more about your animals than a human being. He is just confronting them. Any time a tradition or religion loses compassion, it is well on its way to becoming a dead one. And one of the challenges for us is being believers, making sure we are full of compassion all the time. And any time our compassion begins to become less and less, you better stop whatever you're doing and find your compassion again. This is why I love when I read the gospel, then Jesus, out of compassion, healed the sick. Why? Because people are always more important than some tradition. The ability for someone to have access to healing, to have access to community. What religion couldn't fix with this woman in 18 years, Jesus did in one moment. Anytime you have a tradition that lacks compassion, you open the door for religion to become dead. Look in verse 16. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound, think of it for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath? I love this verse for two specific reasons. One is I love, I think when it says think of it, I think there was a long pause. He's like, guys, time out. Look at me. You're telling me this woman for 18 years was under the spirit of infirmity, and you're all upset because she got healed on a day of Sabbath. And he says, think about that for a second. I think it was a long silence. I hope there was. That would just make it really awesome, awkward moment for them to come to realization, wow, actually, I mean, this was their moment to say, Jesus, you're right. My priorities are off. But no, it, it made it worse. 
But then he does something that I think is very important. He identifies this woman as the daughter of Abraham. He doesn't just say her or that woman. He says the daughter of Abraham. What's he doing? He's saying, listen, humanity is way more important about the kingdom touching someone's life than about some rule. Years ago, I was in a pretty deep study on, on the image of God and humanity. And I, I, was just, I was studying it because I, I wanted to understand something. And we were... And around that time of my studies, we were um, actually down in San Francisco for our senior team. Uh, we have a retreat usually every year around January or December. And this was our, I think, our second or third year that we had been down in San Francisco. And we just all get in a hotel for a couple nights, and we just uh, have a good time. We do some business, but some play. Well, the play was we would do the Segway tours around San Francisco. Those things are awesome, by the way. You look kind of dorky on them, but they are a blast. If you've never done a Segway tour you should totally do it. it. It's awesome. And it was fun to watch my dad and Chris. Dad was very composed, very smooth, and Chris was testing the limits of that segue, going as fast as he can and then pull it back and try to get it. And at one point, him and Steve De Silva had a little interaction in the middle of the road, and Steve De Silva fell off. It was, it was quite comical. So if you do the first year, you do the Golden Gate Park. It's kind of confined, but if you pass that, you go to level two. And level two... Exact level two is the best level because that means you get to tour the city of San Francisco. So we had like an hour to kill before our tour started of the whole city. We were so excited because we had been there the year before. We we're ready to put on the neon reflecting vest and helmets and earbuds for the tour. It was really cool. So we had an hour to kill, and right next to the tour place, there's an art gallery. And we walked into the art gallery, and it was the room was probably about half this size, maybe a little smaller than half, and it was, there were paintings on the wall. And we are, I'm walking around. I love art. I love design. I love architecture. I like, I like admiring things that people make. But this art gallery, to be honest with you, was not impressive at all. There was nothing in there. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Everything was like, I'm super confused of what's going on here. And I'm walking around looking at all these art, and I'm coming to my own conclusion. This is a really bad art gallery. And what made it worse is in the middle of the art gallery, there's a pedestal with all the lights are shining on it, and it's this metal object. And it looked like somebody went to a junkyard and welded a bunch of metal together and threw it in the middle of the room and put a really expensive price tag on it and called it metal sculpture. And I remember going, this is so unimpressive. And then I think, uh, I think it was the next Sunday or very soon thereafter, I come home and we're here at church. I think it was a Sunday night service. And you know, we have people that paint up front here. Teresa has done a phenomenal job organizing these painters. And I'm going to be really honest and vulnerable right now. There was one particular evening that there was one painting that I could not stand. I was like, oh, gosh, what is that painting? <laughs> it was so distracting for me. I was like, I, I'm like worshiping the other way. I just couldn't, I couldn't look at it. And I'm really distracted. I am not appreciating this particular painting at the time. So the whole worship service happened. We get the services over at night. At the end of the night, I think it was Sunday night, I find myself over in front of the stage looking up at the painting, and I'm trying to wrap, like, what is going on here? And I'm looking at it, and someone came and stood right next to me. Who do you think that was? The artist. And I'm so glad I said nothing out loud. And so I leaned over to her, and I said, can you tell me what you were thinking when you painted that painting? I didn't ask her sarcastically. I was actually being served, like, can you tell me, tell me what was going on? And she began to just tell me about this painting, what God was showing her, what was going on in her life. And in a moment, I went from very much disliking this painting to going, 
that's really pretty. Oh, that's a beautiful painting. Wow. I didn't. And I, and I remember going away from that experience, like, what caused me to move from much dislike, I can't stand it, to I would hang that in my house. It was because I had the artist's narrative on the painting, and I wasn't left to my own narrative. And oftentimes, we have our own narrative on people, and things become more important than that. But as long as we have God's narrative on humanity, we will always trump every tradition or religion, and we will keep the main thing the main thing. So when Jesus says, daughter of Abraham, what's he saying? He's letting everyone know, this is a daughter of the king you're talking about here. And you're all jacked up about some Sabbath rule that you made up. And he just, man, he just confronts the system. Talk about disrupting the system. And I want to challenge us today. And I know I'm talking to the choir on this. I think, Bethel, we've done a phenomenal job. But I want to challenge us even more. Because what God is putting before us of the house, locally, nationally, and internationally, is no sign of it slowing down. God is just blowing so much on the church right now. And it's not just Bethel. If you look across the landscape of the body of Christ, we live in one of the most beautiful times in church history. Right now, signs and wonders and miracles are being done by one-day-old babies all the way up to 100-year-olds. I mean, the people are getting saved at a rate across the nations. It is unbelievable to be alive for such a time as this. But I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us. Let's make sure our belief has compassion in the core of it. The other thing about what makes religion dead is when you lose the ability to celebrate or to have joy in what God is doing. This was a moment for the ruler of the synagogue, the pastor, to go, that is awesome. Even though it violated my view of the Sabbath, this is way more important because this was the daughter of the king. So I want to challenge you. If you're coming up the hill one of these Sundays, and you can't get into the parking lot, and you can't find a parking space, instead of being upset about it, think this way. Someone else got my seat today. Someone else got my seat today. Like someone is about to have an encounter with God that they may need it more than me right now. I can't get my kid. Now, I don't have young kids anymore, but I was there. Believe me, I was there not that long ago. Can't get our kids into children's church or nursery. Look at it this way. You know what? Somebody's kid is in there right now having an encounter with the Lord. So I'll go create one at home for my kids. I want us to have a healthy, healthy perspective. And when you run into an environment and it just feels, mm, think of it differently. Oh, no, there's something else. that I, I want to fight that fight. I don't want to fight a parking space fight. How come I don't have a parking space? Where's my seat? Man, some of you, are, some of you love your seats like, like a lot. Like a lot. Like when you don't get your seat, like your spiritual life just kind of goes through a roller coaster like... Everything's thrown off. Like, I was in such a groove until I couldn't have my seat. I remember in Weaverville, there were some people that had their seat in our church, and when they didn't get it someday, it was an issue. First service, I was, I was in the back. There's three ladies in first service, and they sit right back there. And I usually, when I come in, I give them a hug, say hi to them. And I said, you guys like your seats? I'm like, oh, yeah, we love these seats. I said, you know what I'm going to do one of these Sundays? I'm going to, in the middle of the message, have everyone stand up and find a different seat. And they're like, no, no, don't do that. I'm like, no, no, we need to. We need to, like, we need to change our rhythm up a little bit sometimes. 
And I said, just move over at one seat. She said, okay, I'll do that. Let's not fight the fight that don't have eternal value. Let's fight the fight that have eternal value. Let's fight the one. Let's die on the mountain where the presence of God can come into someone's life, even if it costs me something. That's the fight I want to fight. So look at your neighbor and say, time to fight the right fights. And say that ten times really fast. It's funny what happens when you're in an environment where space is an issue. I remember uh, one of the this last year, the senior leadership team, we spent about three months, way too much time, in, in Eric's opinion, on where a crosswalk should go. Should it go there or should it go up the road a little bit? And it was like a big old discussion. It was like, just put a crosswalk there. But it would, Kathy, remember this? Like we were talking about the crosswalk and the, the light. There should be like a street light on it. And it was like this three-month ordeal. And we're like, oh, my gosh. What is go- this? I mean, this is taking up a lot of time and resources. And I had to have an attitude adjustment in the middle of it because I definitely was like, it's a, it's a stupid crosswalk. Just paint two stripes and call it go. Call it a good. Like, no, no, if we put it here... That means it'll affect this traffic and these people and, and all this. And, and finally, we put it where it is now. So next time you, the crosswalk that goes from the flagpole to the cross, that one, just walk by and say, you know, just do something, like appreciate it. Because there was a good three months of discussion behind that crosswalk. And the whole premise was we have to find a way to be the most efficient to get people in and out of here because of just space. What's my point? We're trying to make sure that we have compassion for people more important than anything else. Now, another thing, this might be helpful for some of you. In worship, I love how Sunday we can come up for worship and stand there. Just don't get on that first step. Man, you get on that first step, all the radars go off. And in case you weren't aware, there was a season that people would rush the stage and do some very interesting things, like very interesting things. And so the reason why we have that Measure there is because we don't know if you're one of those. (laughs) And we want to make sure you're not. But you might, man, there's just so much stuff going on. Yeah, there is because we're trying to make sure that people can come here and worship freely and not be distracted by something that's unnecessary. So I just, I'm exposing a little bit of the behind the scenes, but I think it's important for us to be aware of this. We're doing our best. And I want to challenge us as a family. I want to challenge us as a church. Remember, compassion needs to be at the core of everything that we do. Last point, I've already said it, but I'll just say it officially. Dead religion has wrong priorities and forgets who people are. So let's fight the right fights. Why don't we stand? Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This weekly podcast is now being translated in several languages. Visit podcasts.ibethel.org.